Welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Um, and uh, we are currently working our way through the stories that Lovecraft wrote between 1920, or he published between 1920 and 1924. This will take us uh, basically from, uh, what was the first one? The Terrible Old Man, all the way up through the Shunt House, I, I believe. So about 27 stories. It's a big chunk of Lovecraft's uh, bulk in just terms of the number of stories, although um, these stories are pretty short compared to what he wrote later on. Um, it is a, a significant period of development in Lovecraft's uh, writings um, where he's experimenting in different forms. It's commonly talked about as his Poe phase and Duncey phase. Uh, these actually overlap. I mean, he's, he's trying stories in both kinds of veins here, but he's also developing themes that are a big part of his work throughout his his life and something really acknowledged in his in his uh other you know it's themes that become distinctively lovecraftian are here as well um so in today's episode i'll be looking at a, a relatively short story it's only three pages called the cats of ulthar um and this one is is in honor of of my uh adopted cat rusty so um of course you know cats have a place in a lot of lovecraft stories uh, lovecraft of course was a cat lover he had uh he had several cats and he he sort of idealized them and he thought there was something really special about them i think many cat lovers uh appreciate something similar to what lovecraft sees in them that they, they seem to have like a preternatural kind of knowledge or or awareness of the world that that other pets uh, maybe seem to lack um, so I like this little tale it's again it's it's very very short uh, it kind of fits into the dreamland stories it doesn't have a, a dreamer obviously but it's it's set clearly in the dreamlands uh, we see these locations mentioned in other stories um, Ulthar, for instance, appears in The Other Gods, a story we'll be looking at in, in a few weeks, I suppose, uh, whenever we get to it. Um, but, uh, you know, it doesn't have a dreamer. So there are dreamland stories with the dreamer. Most of them have some sort of dreamer, like Polaris, but some don't, like uh, The Cats of Ulthar and uh, The Doom That Came to Sarnath, which are more just kind of world-building type of, of stories. Obviously, it's only kind of in hindsight when we look at the the dream quest of the unknown Kadath, that we could kind of piece together this larger larger world that lovecraft was was building here so this has actually uh got a lot of interesting things here in terms of lovecraft's themes um yeah i'm working obviously off the clinger anthology this one is in the second one uh the beyond arkham um book but uh he calls it one of the dunzian tales and yeah it fits that description i suppose but I do think it's got some really important Lovecraftian themes that I like to, to talk about a little bit. So the story begins in a very compelling way. Uh, we we kind of get the, the punchline immediately, and that is in the land of Ulthar, there is a law, uh, or at least a vernacular tradition. I think it's more that. I, I don't think it's a, it's a pure law, but it's a vernacular tradition that no one may kill a cat. And then the story unveils why that is and, and how that prohibition emerged. So uh, Lovecraft begins the tale, though, talking about cats generally, and he writes this. Um, For the cat is cryptic and close to strange things which men cannot see. He is the soul of antique Egypt, the bearer of tales from forgotten cities of Mirror and Orphan. 
He is the kin of the jungle's lords and heir to the secret, hoary, and sinister Africa. The Sphinx is his cousin and he speaks her language and he is more ancient than the Sphinx and remembers that which she had forgotten. Um, now, I have no way of knowing how much Lovecraft would have known about the domestication of cats. Uh, people, of course, knew about the Egyptian uh, fascination with cats, which you just see if you see any of the art and uh, you know art from egypt there's cat there's thousands of cat mummies for instance so people certainly took cats seriously as a uh, as part of that culture uh it they've actually originally domesticated in the near east but maybe the ancient cat is most well known for for egypt um but lovecraft here sees them as somehow being a source of of knowledge it's of themselves a bearer of tales uh something that like history is passed on through through the cats, so that cats have a again this kind of preternatural knowledge of of things. Um, so I think I think Lovecraft might actually believe this, or at least uh, uh, play with his idea a little bit. Um, speaking the language of the Sphinx, for instance, is is a rather uh, interesting uh, line here, and then reminding us it's more ancient than the Sphinx. Um, and quote remembers that which she hath forgotten. Uh, meaning the Sphinx, he's gendering the Sphinx as a as a female. Okay, then we jump into the story after that 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 first introductory paragraph, and uh, we're given uh, a little village in Ulthar, um, this land of Ulthar. Um, this is the the place where actually it is a law. The Burgesses forbade the killing of cats. I think it's still you get the sense it's more of a, of a custom or you know local culture, but yeah, it it is clearly stated here that it, that is a law. Um, but there was an old cotter in the town. And now a cotter is essentially a day laborer, you know, in rural England. Uh, the term cotter referring to someone who gets their room and board, essentially, in exchange for, 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 for work. So they're an old cotter, meaning they've been doing it their whole life, right? So they're poor. So there's a class dimension here. Um, but, you know, it's kind of like it reminds me of the witches. We talked about the witches before. In this podcast, obviously, Lovecraft was interested in the witch cults of, of Europe. Murray's book, which talks about the tradition of witches. I've talked about Brian Palmer's book as well, which looks at the witch cult in Europe, which both those writers seem to think there was something real about the witch cult, not so much in terms of magic, but in the fact that there is a tradition, a, a, a belief in witches that is alive and, and, and well. And actually, in this, this story, we actually have two competing kind of sets of magic, two competing vernacular traditions. In many of Lovecraft's stories, you have the vernacular tradition juxtaposed to a more formal tradition, or especially in his later work, a desire to forget or abolish that past. If you be Charles Dexter Ward, that story is all about forgetting. Um, but usually, one who remembers where, where memory remains is in the vernacular traditions. But this is a little different in that we have two clearly distinct traditions. One held by the old cotter, which is essentially a type of witchcraft, it seems. And it's well known that they trap and kill cats from the local village. And everyone in the village knows this, and everyone in the village keeps extra watch over their cats, trying to protect them. But cats get away from time to time. They're hard to to keep in the house, if you will, and eventually they'll get cats and they'll hear these strange noises and they're killed in exceedingly peculiar ways in Lovecraft's language. Now, as we see in many of Lovecraft's stories, when there is some knowledge of something horrible, the tendency of people is to, to, to forget them. And there's the forgetters and the rememberers. I think that, that runs through Lovecraft's 
works throughout his whole career, the rememberers and the forgetters. And, and the villagers here are forgetters in the sense that they don't want to actually acknowledge what the old man and his wife, it's, it's two people, do to them. And they're, they're feared in town, um, avoided, um, and they're feared so much that they're not even confronted on their, the, the murder of these cats. Um, basically, all people could do is thank the fate, quote, thank fate that it was not one of his children who had thus vanished. So the suggestion here, of course, is that the, this old cotter and his wife are actually known to or have in the past kidnapped children. And so we're back to the kind of the blood libel story. I talked about this when we looked at The Alchemist, one of Lovecraft's earliest stories. I think it's actually the second episode in this whole podcast where I looked at the blood libel in that story. And there's clearly a case of it there, um, you know, where someone is kidnapping children for some kind of occult reasons. Now, in European history, the blood libel was targeting mostly Jews. Um, so that subtext is, is always there and hard to avoid whenever we, we see um, stories or mentions of the stealing and, and ki killing of children. Um, but he ends this and he has a very interesting line here. Quote, for the people of Luther was simple and knew not whence it is all cats first came. End quote. So we're reminded of the first paragraph where we're, we're told that there's this ancient history and ancient knowledge held by by the cats. So the cats actually are a little bit feared as well by the people of, of Ulthar. So that's the first tradition we're introduced to is essentially this witchcraft tradition or this um, kind of some kind of alchemical tradition. It's not clearly laid out what they're doing with these cats. Uh, we don't really know, but it's some magic, obviously. Then we get a caravan that comes in. So this is the second tradition that is discussed in the story. Um, because these people are also holders of magic and conveyors of traditions. Um, they come through twice a year, so they're like gypsies, I suppose. So if, if the old cotter is like a witch, uh, the caravan are, are essentially gypsies. So that's how we're presented. They're, they're merchants. They pass through. They speak a strange language. They seem to embrace a strange tradition. Quote, what was the land of these wanderers? None could tell. But it is seen that they were given to strange prayers and that they had painted on the side of their wagon strange figures with human bodies, the heads of cats, hawks, rams, and lions. And at the leader of the caravan wore a headdress with two horns and a curious disc betwixt the thorn horns, end quote. So this, we, you know, what is the tradition here that's, that's being described? Well, it seems partially, at least, what we have with this caravan culture, the gypsy culture, is some sort of animal worship. So the exact opposite of what the cotter is doing. So if you want to film this into a movie, right, you would have, you know, you need to stretch this out into two hours. You would obviously develop both of these as competing forces, right? Different uses of cats. The worshippers of the cats, the idealizers of the cats and animals, and those who, who murder them for occult reasons. So uh, in this caravan is a boy. Um, uh, an orphan boy who's raised by the caravan, which I think is an interesting um, thing as well. I mean, Lovecraft was not really orphaned, but he certainly had parent issues that, that, that we need to acknowledge. I don't know if he's seen himself in this boy. I don't think Lovecraft would often see himself akin to a wandering population like, like these gypsy caravanners, but uh, they are sort of the heroes of this story. But that said, they have a lot of things that the village is sort of fearful of them too because they also seem to hold some sort of magic. Um, so he lost his kid, he lost, or he lost his parents to a plague, yet his only thing he had in life was this small 
black kitten. So it's, it's not even a full-grown cat, it's just a kitten. Um, quote, so the boy whom the dark people called Menzies, so these gypsies are dark people, um, so they're racially se separate. Um, so, the dark, uh, the, so the boy whom the dark people called Menzies smiled more often than he wept as he sat playing with his grateful kitten on the steps of the oddly painted wagon. So he's quite content with his, his life. Uh, even though he's an orphan, he's got this cat that fulfills his, his, his longing for family. So as we expect, uh, within a few days of the caravan arriving in Ulthar, uh, Menzies loses his kitten um, and he cries about it and the villagers tell him about the old man and his wife, the cotter, and how what they do with cats. And so then he begins to pray. And here we, we see not only are these racial others, they're kind of cultural, they're obviously cultural others, they speak even a different language. Um, quote, he stretched out his arms towards the sun and prayed in a tongue no villager could understand, though indeed the villagers did not try very hard to understand, since their attention was mostly taken up by the sky and the odd shapes the clouds were assuming, end quote. So obviously there's some sort of magic at work here, almost like a magic spell that Menzies is calling up. Now the spell seems to reveal more than just clouds, because uh, the clouds start to form shapes. So they, what do they form? They form, quote, nebulous figures of exotic things, of hybrid creatures crowned with horn flanked discs. So again, there's some kind of naturalistic nature to this, this cult, this religious worship that the, that the caravan people, the, the gypsy people embrace. So they leave Ulthar after this incident and vanish. They never come back. They used to come twice a year, but they never come back. The other thing missing are all the cats. So then a mystery kind of is revealed here. What happened to the cats? Um, so one argument is basically all the cats were stolen um, and it was as revenge for the killing of, of Menace's cat, a kitten. Um, and so the boy in the caravan are blamed. But another person, a notary of all people, says that it was the old cotter and his wife who, who killed all the cats as some sort of revenge against the, the village. Um, how they do that is not clear, but there is confirmation of this in, the, in a witness uh, little Atal, the innkeeper's son. So we get another um, figure here, another character. Uh, but he, quote, vowed that he had, had at twilight seen all the cats of Ulthar in that accursed yard under the trees, pacing very slowly and solemnly in a circle around the cottage to abreast, as if in performance of some unheard of right of beasts, end quote. Now, the way we read this is two ways. One is uh, they've they somehow seduced or hypnotized all the cats and are going to kill them all. But I think you know, that the cats are somehow used in some kind of ritual by the, by the caravan seems more likely here. And that, that the revenge against the couple, against the cotter, is being done by the cats themselves. But probably at the, at the, through the spell that uh, the boy cast the night before. Menaces. Menaces spell. So the next day, the, the cats return. The cats return at dawn. All, every cat, every cat of Ulthar that had vanished is returned. Um, and we get a nice description of all the different types of cats that Ulthar has, this village on Ulthar, in, of, of Ulthar. It's very kind of nice, because Lovecraft, although a, a, a racist, although a eugenicist, he certainly does not apply his eugenics to cats. And I can't say the same thing about um, the Chinese, it seems, because I've I adopted this cat originally with the intention of, of keeping it safe. 
until I could find a home for it, but no one seems to want a orange tabby cat. They all want their certain particular breeds. So um, cat eugenicists um, seem to be out there. Um, I suppose, like, even my, my parents with their dogs, they always want purebred dogs. They, they never want to just get the, the mud. I don't get that. I don't, I don't understand it. Some kind of weird fetish. But anyways, um, Lovecraft seems to appreciate all types of cats here. Um, now, they're, they're, they're the same, except they don't eat. And for two days, they don't eat anything. They don't eat any meat, drink any milk or anything. Now, this kind of confirms maybe what happened, because uh, it, had they been taken by the old couple, they would all have been killed. Um, but since they returned, they must have been taken by the caravan. So that seems to solve that, that, that mystery. So everything's kind of back to normal in, in Uthar, except they begin to notice, because they don't go to approach. They never, they're never they too they're too afraid to approach the old couple, um, which is a topic I want to get to in a little bit. Um, but they're too afraid to approach the couple, so they, they don't even really investigate it. But then they notice that there's no light coming from the cottage. So eventually they, they, they build up their courage, take with them two apparently big guys, Shang the blacksmith and Phil the cutter of stones, they, maybe the biggest guys in town, they take with them to approach the old couple. And they go there, they enter the house, it's just a frail door, and they see two skeletons and beetles. That's all that's there. So then it all becomes a myth at that point, um, just talking about that. They do do a little bit more investigation. They, they talk to the people who investigated the house. They talk again to Atal, who's the one who saw the cats at the Cotter's or, or out by the tree by the Cotter's place before. Um, and it becomes myth. Quote, they talked of the old Cotter and his wife in the caravan of dark wanderers of small menace and his black kitten of the prayers of menace in the sky during that prayer and of the doings of the cats on the night the caravan left and of what was later found in the cottage under the dark trees of the repellent yard. And that is what led the Burgesses to pass the law, which says uh, in Ulthar, no man may kill a cat. So that's the story. So um, pretty straightforward, actually. It's, it's, you know, Menzies cast some sort of spell that led to the cats inflicting their revenge on this old couple. Um, so, and then of course, this, this then becomes mythology and law uh, in Ulthar. Now, I think what, what you need to just to do due diligence here, um, not to have too much sympathy for the old cotter because he is killing cats and doing weird magic. Uh, he is a cotter. It's a class issue, right? Now, we don't really get the sense of really extreme class divisions in this town, but a cotter is a day laborer who's basically like a tenant farmer of sorts who works in exchange for not even for land. It's, I mean, he's like, it's worse than a sharecropper because at least a sharecropper rents the land in exchange for a share of the crop. The cotter works essentially as a wage laborer, but instead of getting money, just gets the room and board. And they've been doing it apparently their whole life. Um, you know, Lovecraft's not interested enough to tell us the background of this. Um, maybe in a later story, he would have gone into all this. Like, why is this, these old cotters still there? They're probably too old to work. But you know, maybe they were allowed to keep the, the cottage after a while. But anyways, they're extremely poor. That's my point. So it's a, it is a class issue and we can't ignore it entirely. That, and he's also been socially isolated. So I am reminded of the witch cult phenomenon again. 
because as Brian Palmer argues in his book, Cultures of Darkness, that when you have extremely poor peasant cultures, right, it's not uncommon for them to seek out magic as a way to alleviate their, their tragedy, to give it some understanding, to, to uh, hedge their bets in a way. Like you pray to God, you go through your regular Christian traditions, but maybe you also do a little bit of devil worship as kind of hedging your bet as a strategy of survival. So we don't know the background of this. We know that they're hated. And did that hatred proceed or that disgust, that isolation that proceed their killing of cats or only came as a result of their killing of cats? We obviously can't know, but I think we need to acknowledge that even though this doesn't seem to be a little class ridden society, there is, at least in the form of the cotter, probably one of the probably the poorest member of the community is the one doing these crimes against the cats and maybe maybe against the children of the community as well. So um, not to glorify his choices in any way, but to try to understand them perhaps and to see that there's a, there's a deeper reason for that. Um, you know, maybe magic becomes a survival strategy for the cotter and his, and his wife. Um, but, uh, you know, kind of the mythical origins of law are, is an interesting theme here um, because we get this, we get the law that's there and then, the explanation of why the law exists we get the story around it whether it's true or not it, it's in mythology it's 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 how people Uthar, understand this law this this prohibition on the killing of of, of cats um so that's the story it's a really great one it only takes five minutes or so to read i really really recommend the cats of Ulthar. Uh, i don't think i gave you the publication information so i'll do that now uh it was written in 1920 Give me a second here. Uh, yeah, written in June 1920. On one day, June 15, 1920, he wrote this in one day. Um, not a big feat for Lovecraft, who wrote pages and pages of letters. Um, but it's a pretty polished and well, well put together story, despite uh, being written in one day. And it was published in November 1920 in, in the tryout. The tryout was another one of those amateur journals that Lovecraft um, worked in. When he started publishing Weird Tales, the story was reprinted in February 1926, and then it would see print again in 1933. So this story, this story actually was seen, was seen in print three times in Lovecraft's life, which is um, pretty rare. A lot of these stories were not republished till after his, his death by, um, by Arkham House in anthologies or in weird tales. So anyways, that's my thoughts on the Cats of Ulthar. I like this story very much. It's uh, my, one of my favorite of the Dreamland stories. I love the competing traditions here, the caravan versus the old cotter. I love the, the way mythology and law sort of intertwine here in the story. Um, I like how we have a kind of a vernacular prohibition. Um, you know, that's like not killing a cat seems to be like a cultural thing. It's like a cultural taboo, but uh, the origins seem to be in uh, the decision of an actual lawmaker of, of Ulthar. Um, not so much of world building. I mean, we don't have enough here to really do, do a lot of world building here, but there are some interesting aspects. We learn about Ulthar. We learn about these traveling caravans of dark people. Um, we got racial diversity, cultural diversity among the, among the, the people in the dreamlands. So, um, great. Uh, oh, and then of course we have uh, magic. We have, uh, gods, uh, somehow being summoned by a young boy, a young orphan boy who, who has some kind of magic that maybe even the other people in the caravan don't don't have. I mean, the caravan people do like tell fortune and stuff like that. 
Um, but yeah, they told fortunes for silver. That, that was part of how they made their money. But this boy seemed to have some real magic, which is great. So anyways, that's uh, the Cats of Ulthar. And the next story, we'll be looking at uh, facts concerning the late Arthur German and his family. This is a story that gets right to the heart of what our, this podcast is trying to focus on, which is issues of class, race, uh, ancestry, and how Lovecraft dealt with them. So an important story. So you've got to, to, to read that one. And I will, of course, give my comments on it in the next episode. Looking forward to it. I like that story, too. Um, so that's it. A lot of short stories, a lot of really brief stories in this part of Lovecraft's career, but a lot of really nice ones, a lot of ones that are fairly memorable and, and stand up over time. So that's it for now. Um, I will see you next time with uh, my thoughts on Arthur Sherman.